decades without using this, and now I can't. I'm like Chad. It's like whatever he is is rubbed off on me. Um, <laughs> uh, but in being in Waco, uh, we've been there now for roughly a year. I, I went about this time just a little bit earlier. Oh, actually, just over a year. And recently, I've I've had sort of a, I've had actually not sort of a crisis. I've had a major crisis in Waco, and it was something I didn't expect. Wasn't counting on, and it's a crisis that happened to me. That's happened to me every Sunday, um, to the point where two weeks ago, my wife Katie said, "I don't know that we can stay here. Um, either we're going to have to go somewhere else, or you're going to have to recognize you have a distinct role here, and you're going to have to step into that." And the crisis that was happening perpetually in my life is that we would go to church, and I would go at the end of a great week, and just great time with the Lord and the Lord saying things, speaking into our life, taking us forward. And I would go to church and we're in the Bible Belt. And in ways that only Katie knows, I would come home and I would be undone. I would be fetal. Um, in ways that's hard to describe. There's almost not language for what I would go through on a Sunday afternoon. And it would carry into Monday and I'd start being okay on Tuesday. And this was a week in and week out kind of crisis thing. And it was... And I started recognizing, I was struggling, like, what is this that's going on with me? And I didn't have language, I couldn't pinpoint it, but I started to understand that I was going to church and I was experiencing the gap. In 1 Corinthians, it says that the non-believer is supposed to be able to come if you are an atheist, if you are absolutely uncertain about the reality of God, if you have no place for Christianity, there is to be something about this gathering that is to so explain you. There is a, something that you're to encounter that can only be explained by the reality of God. That's supposed to happen here. And it's supposed to happen with people who are absolutely uninclined towards Christianity. Think about that. I'm inclined towards Christianity. I'm a Christian. I have a pastoral call. And I'm going to church full of hope. And I'm leaving there so sorely disappointed because the gap between what I know I'm supposed to experience and encounter there and what's happening in me and to me is, is so discouraging. So often I just get up and I just leave and I'm just undone by that. There's a lot I could say about that, but it tells me I think that we're facing a crisis in the church today. And I think it's a crisis that many of us are aware of. We're not facing a crisis of ministry or of creative ideas. There's more creativity in the church than ever before. We're facing a crisis, I think, of disbelief, of just enormous proportions. There's low expectations. There's low hope. Um, and this low expectation and this low hope in the church is only matched or if anything, exceeded by the receding sense of God's presence and God's power and God's movement in the church. This is what I think I've been experiencing on a regular basis where we are. The church is to be this place where heaven breaks in. That's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer, that things on earth would be as they are in heaven. And for too many of us, too long, that's just been a prayer that we've recited. It's a philosophical idea. It's our worldview, but it's not our reality. Like, what does that mean? 
Is that how I describe my experience when I go to church? Is that how I describe the knowledge of God? And I think the crisis that we're experiencing is that too much of that has become academic. It's become theoretical in the evangelical church. I'm using a wide brush. Obviously, there's places where this is not the case. But in the Bible Belt, I think this has become operative. This is, this is what we're encountering. I think presently, one of the things that we're seeing in the church is that many people, and this is a result of me meeting with ministry leaders, elders, deacons, pastors over the last, over my season in Texas and actually stemming back to my season back here in, in the Central Coast. God gave me just the, the favor of getting to know a lot of pastors, principally because I knew Chad, so it was like an easy in. And time and time again, I would meet with people who would say, Rick, I am bored with Christianity. I'm just bored. The church has become boring. The ministry has become boring. Why is that? And so what I find is that we're in a generation where we're not facing a mass exodus from the church. In fact, I think what we're facing is a mass settling where people are saying, I'm, I've just got to settle for what I've known and what I've experienced for this kind of Christianity that's easily explainable, where God gives me five, five loaves and two fish and I feed seven people. Like, I can explain that, right? Anybody can do that. And we've learned to do ministry in this kind of way. We learned to spin a thing to sort of characterize things in a certain kind of way, but it's actually not true. And in a room this size, it's inevitable that some of you here are in that kind of place. Maybe you've had a long run in the church. Maybe you've grown in it. You've been around it. You've had family members bring you here. I can say all kinds of things because I don't know any of you. But inevitably, some of you are just saying, look, this whole thing is just boring to me. I'm tired of it. It doesn't satisfy my soul. It doesn't speak to the most primal longings of my being, the way even my, if I turn on ESPN and I get the football game or something like that, at least that stirs something in me, but the church doesn't. And so some of you, we fight the battle to turn this thing on. I got a clock on mine going, if you're wondering. But I think that's the thing that we're facing. And it's the thing that I keep confronting time and time again. And the Bible tells us. The thing is, that's not actually out of line with what Christianity is. The Bible tells us time and time again that Christianity is going to misfire in the experiences of tons of people. You find this in chapters like Isaiah 58 where it talks about the, the people of God praying and fasting but not connecting. It seems like God doesn't hear, right? Um, you can go to like Psalm 77 where it's, the psalmist is praying. It seems like the, the mercies of God have come to an end. His covenant has failed. Or even just the churches in the book of Revelation where things are just misfiring. The churches become lukewarm warm, and God is on the verge of departing the church. Or you go to Galatians where people have drifted, and in their drifting, their hearts are misfiring because they've lost their sense of joy. There's nothing compelling in the church anymore. And so the whole letter, the, really, to the church of Galatia is addressing a church 
that's misfiring, that's no longer compelling, a church that's probably boring as all get to attend. And I'm convinced that's the day that we live in. It's the day that we've got to speak into. And it's, it also is what we happen to find in the passage that we're going to look at today, which happens to be in Ezekiel 36. That's where we're going to be. But before we read that, I want to do a little background. We're going to have to do a little work today. So I hope some of you might need a pen. Some of you are going to have to listen to this again. Sorry. <laughs> but we're going to need to do a little work to really understand, I think, what's going on here. And to see the ways that maybe this addresses the place that I think that we find ourselves today. Because what I'm hoping that will happen today, there's a, an enormous amount of hope. But we're going to have to do some work to get at it. So you guys sort of ready to do some work today? Yes, sir. All right. So, we're, so it's just, it is what it is. I want to begin with the gospel. It's a good place to begin. When Jesus teaches, all roads lead to Rome. He's Luke 24. He's on the road to Emmaus. Beginning with one end of the Bible to the other, he's, he tells them that the whole story is about him. He says, look, if you're going through this book, pick your book, pick your story wherever you are. He says, it's all about me. And it's not just about me. It's about me as I'm revealed in the gospel. It's about me and the cross. It's about all that God is doing in Jesus. He's telling these two men on the road to Emmaus. He says, if you're going to understand this book, you actually have to understand that it's about me. Right. And so the gospel is all about Jesus. And I've used this image for a long time that the gospel is like a jewel. And you can spin this jewel, and the gospel has many sides. And this is something that's become really clear to me in the last, actually, five or six years during this period that Chad and I have been in the bushes. And let me just spin this jewel with, for you for a while, if I can. can. Let me just go over what some of the sides of the gospel are, because we're going to focus on one. But I'd like to just bring up to you what some of these sides are. So what are the various sides of the gospel? We could consider, number one, the lordship of Jesus. Peter, pe preaching after Pentecost, says, look, this Jesus whom you've crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. And so the gospel is the declaration that there is someone who rules and reigns, and we bring this message to the world, and the reason why that's not oppressive is because our God is also good. Right. So we have a reigning God, but we have a reigning God that is good. And that's such an important message today because most people feel if you invite them into church, if they're going to participate in Christianity, it's going to involve a regression in life. You're asking them to suppress life, to take regressive steps. It's just a process of saying no to more and more things. But that's a complete misunderstanding of who Jesus is. That's not who he is, actually. The lordship of Jesus is about the declaration that the God who revealed himself to Moses, he said, look, I'm going to cause my goodness to pass in front of you. That God reigns. Yes, and so we bring that message. So the gospel from one angle is about the lordship of Jesus. We could spin it again and say the, the gospel of Jesus is about the defeat of Satan. Yes. There's a real enemy in this world, and the enemy isn't just you and your failures or your sins. There's an enemy outside of you. And only that enemy out there is a big enough explanation for the level of evil that we see in this world. That's right. 
And so the gospel is the good news that as you walk into an area, sometimes we talk about the spirit of the area or the forces involved in an area, and we can talk about economic forces and social forces, and so often behind those forces is a real legitimate force, and that force is the force of Satan. But I know that I can move into, like we moved, I showed Chad yesterday a picture of my neighbor's house, which was this burnt down leaning tower of Pisa. We're in a sort of, we're moving into a sort of a bad area of Waco. And so in that area are all kinds of negative things at work, all kinds of cycles of bad things going on. But I can move into that area with hope because I believe that not only is there a God who reigns, but who has victory over Satan in that region. When Katie and I moved to Long Beach, someone took us around who was a pastor in that area, and he took us to the area. In fact, we were driving by the place where we were going to end up planting our church, which was Cherry and Broadway. Yeah, I think, in Long Beach. And he said, don't go here which is where we went, because he said, like, this is a deathbed for church planters. Like, this is, like, this is, if, if you want to make certain you don't make it, go here. And because the force is at work there. But we're not supposed to run from that. It's like, no, our God has victory over that, so we can enter that. And we can enter every portion of the city because Jesus has victory over that. So the gospel is good news that I'm not subject to those forces. Right? What else? The gospel tells me that Jesus and the gospel has victory over the power of sin in my life and, and my guilt and my shame. I tell you, so I come from a tribe, not the Nazarene tribe, and my tribe loves to talk about perpetual brokenness. And we're broken. Sin breaks you. But part of the good news of the gospel is not that just Jesus deals with your sin and your shame. Part of the good news of the gospel is you can be different. That you can live a different life. That there's hope that I don't have to perpetually kick the cat, quote unquote, right? I can actually stop kicking my cat and I can live a different life. And if you're hounded by sin, if you're hounded by something, part of the good news of the gospel is Jesus says you can be different. You can be distinctly different. We're going to see that in this passage. What else could we talk about? We can talk about substitution. Great news again. The reason you have access, the reason prayer works, is because Jesus died the death you were supposed to die. But he also lived the life you could never live. And because of that, because he died your death, and because he lived the perfect life you could never live, you have access before the Father, because all of your life has been paid for, and the life of perfection you could never live, he lived for you, and when God sees you, the sins have been paid for, and the perfection has been given to you, and you can go boldly because you come united to Jesus in that death and that life, right? So this is not just doctrine, this is really practical. You can't live with a sense of acceptance, you'll never pray, pray as God calls you to pray unless you understand that because you'll always be dealing with all your negativity and your failures and all of that, and it will keep you from praying. So you've got to believe the good news of his substitution in his death and in his life. It's really important. 
Look, and this is not just abstract stuff, by the way. I'm about to go out and make a hard right turn here. As human beings, whether or not you're a Christian, it's something that we grapple with. Look, when you're young and you go to grammar school and there's a bunch of kids playing off to the side, what do you want? You want them to accept you, right? And then you go and you, you grow up and you go up into high school and now there's this club and there's that group and that team. What do you want? You want to be accepted. And then you put together an application because you want to go to college. And what do you want? You want acceptance. And then you see some cute girls, cute guy or what have you, and you dress yourself all up. Why? Because you want to be accepted. It rules our life. Jesus says, look, that, the gospel is the good news that that doesn't have to rule you. You've been accepted by me. It's part of the human condition. It's not just unique to Christians. It's not like, hey, we live this way, nobody else does. It's part of being human. Last thing. Actually, there's some more stuff. Right, we could talk about the gospel is the good news of the kingdom. So the gospel is the good news, not just simply that your sins are forgiven. The gospel is the good news that your sins are forgiven so that you can participate in the kingdom. For most of my life as a pastor, as a Christian, the gospel was the good news that my sins were forgiven, although we've talked about a bunch of other things. You need to get this, that the gospel is the good news that your sins are forgiven so that you can participate in the kingdom, yes. so that all that God has promised you in Jesus, you can step into in its, all its fullness, so that forgiveness is not an end in, of, in and of itself. It's so that you can participate. So the gospel is the good news that the kingdom is here and it's for you. And here's the last thing. This is something, after years of seminary, I never knew this. After years of the pastorate, I never said this once. For some of you, God has caused you to run right by me. This is going to be old news. But for me, in the last five years, this is new news. And this is really what we're going to focus on today. The gospel is God's promise to reveal himself to you through Jesus. So it's not the possibility that you can know God. It is the promise of God to reveal himself through a believing people. I'm going to turn to Romans, and I haven't even... Uh, we haven't got to Ezekiel, but that's okay. Stick your finger in Ezekiel. I'm going to read the most, the central verse to the Protestant Reformation. This was the verse that brought Luther into faith, and it was Romans 117. I'm going to back up a verse because many of you will be familiar with this. So verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Amen. Verse 17. I hope you never hear this verse the same after today. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed and or is being revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Amen. The way I was taught when I went to seminary the pastors who I was around always told me that, the, and maybe you think this too, that the way I should understand this, because Paul is going to talk about this in Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 5 and in other places, 
He's going to say, well, the righteousness that's being revealed is the righteousness that you receive when you put your faith in Jesus. I believe that happens. I don't believe that that's what that verse is talking about. Six years ago, I was not in a good place. And I stopped for a moment in my life and I said, God, I need to know what to expect in the coming of your kingdom. Having been a pastor and all this, having studied, I felt like I had no idea. And so I stopped and I said, Lord, teach me how to set my expectations in terms of the kingdom. What have you promised to do for me in Jesus? And I spent months on a journey through the Old Testament prophets, trying to understand what God had promised me in the blood of his son. Where to set my hope, where to set my expectation. And there's a ton of stuff that we could talk about, but one of the things that you see that starts becoming very clear that God had promised in the arrival of the Messiah in the kingdom was that his righteousness would begin to rule and that he would rule and reign in righteousness in this kingdom. And that righteousness was going to be one of the defining characteristics of the kingdom of God. And righteousness being the summation, so get this, the righteousness of God is the summation of the splendor of all that he is. All of his character. So think about all who God has revealed himself. We've talked about his goodness and so many, his faithfulness, his love, his kindness, his mercy, his grace. If you take all of that and the splendor and the glory of all that, of all of that, that is his righteousness. When I came to Romans 1.17, I began to realize that what God is revealing, what God had promised in the, in the prophets was to reveal himself in the kingdom as a God of righteousness and of justice. And what God is saying in Romans 1.17 is this, that the righteousness of God, who he is in and of himself, is being revealed through a believing people as they live their life in each moment of faith, looking to him, trusting him, and in those moments, he is revealing himself to them and through their acts of faith. Yes. Yes. So the gospel is the good news that God has promised in Jesus to reveal himself to you. If you will, in each, if you will look to him, because it says the righteous live by faith, and each moment of faith that you look to him and trust him, his promise is to reveal and manifest himself to you in, in your life. That was possibly in the last six years the biggest light that went on in my life. That has freed me. I wouldn't be in Waco apart from this verse, I can tell you right now. Because what God is saying is, Rick, I've told you to seek first my kingdom. And then I go here and I say, I understand, Lord, if I seek your kingdom, if I trust you to take care of, every, take care of everything, I'm not just going to see stuff show up at my house. I'm going to see you manifest your faithfulness deep in my soul so that I know that I know that I know that you're a faithful God. You're a loving God. You're a kind God, a merciful and a gracious God. As I believe you for the most forsaken and overlooked parts of the city, in contrast, my flesh wants to run a different way, but Lord, as I go there, like Hebrews 11, I was sharing with Chad the other day, where it says they have, having every opportunity to return. Like I keep feeling this part of me that just wants to, let's return to the central coast. <laughs> it's so nice here, especially as Katie and I hear, you know, all my being wants to do that, but then I read Romans 1, and it says, no, but Rick, I've promised 
to manifest myself to you as the faithful, glorious God who's always with his people, who always is true to what he promised. You will know me in ways you've never known. If in your faith-to-faith moments you trust me and you look to me, this is the gospel. And this is the way, and by the way, when that happens, when you believe that, you realize that to be a Christian means that you come to the end of a certain way of living, which is the way of self-reliance, sort of the autonomous way of self-sufficiency, self-seeking. And it's the birth, because Christianity is a, is a new birth, but it's the birth of a whole new way of being human. Because you do silly things that are just rub against the grain of, of what seems sensible and reasonable. You do things like you move to Waco without support. <laughs> and you say, why would you do such a thing? Do you know why we, I'll tell you why we moved. We read, I read a biography of George Mueller. Anybody read George Mueller? You need to read, like go home, don't listen to another word I'm saying, just go home and read George Mueller. George Mueller's one of my top two favorite biographies. And George Mueller was a minister in Bristol, England in the 1800s. And his good friend was, uh, I'm blanking on his name, the Chinese missionary. Hudson, thank you, Daniel. And Mueller influenced Hudson Taylor. He had, an or, he had orphanages where he cared for 2,000 orphanages, orphans in the 1800s. And someone asked Mueller, why did you do what you did? And he talks about this in his autobiography. He says, you know, I, ca- I cared about the welfare of the, of the children. I wanted them to know the Lord. I wanted them to be fed. He said, but none of that is actually why I did this. So the reason I started the orphanages was I wanted people to know that God could be trusted. I wanted to be a living demonstration of the reality of the kingdom. Think about that. I can't tell you the way that that gripped my soul. And so if you ask us, why did we go to Waco? We're in, it involves a farm and a bunch of other stuff. But in the end, it's not about the farm or any of the other stuff. It is we want to be a visible demonstration to the church and beyond the church to the world that God still does what he promises to do, that the kingdom is real. We want to revive the faith of the church. The gospel is God's promise to reveal himself. I'm not getting very far very fast. Um, If you read the Old Testament... The Old Testament was supposed to be the story of Israel living this kind of life. God redeems them out of Egypt. We know that. He takes them into the wilderness, and there in the wilderness, God begins to disciple the people of Israel. He prepares them. That's sort of what Exodus is. It's a discipleship manual for Israel. It works for us, by the way, too. And he's sort of saying, this is how you're going to live in the promised land, and especially as the generation is switching and the new one be- it's sort of arising because the old one's got to die in the land. And, but he's training this new generation. And he said, look, as you go into this land, things are going to sort of scream out at you. You're going to sort of worry about your daily bread. But he said, look, I, I'm teaching you right now that, number one, life is more than bread. You're going to live by every word that comes from my mouth. You're going to learn to trust everything that I say. 
and I promise to be the Lord God, your provider. So each day while we're in the wilderness, you're going to trust that bread is going to come from heaven, and you're going to learn to know me daily in each faith-to-faith moment as the Lord God, your provider. And then nations are going to come against you, and he says, look, I don't want you to fear when you see all them. You're going to look weak and puny and all of that, and they're going to be big and strong and mighty. He says, it doesn't really matter. Because I'm going to be the Lord God who fights for you. And here's how you're going to do battle. Most people leave with all kind of crazy stuff. You're going to leave with horns and trumpets. You're going to walk around walls and do things that just don't make any sense to you. I've got this. You're going to learn to trust me. I think that's what's happening with David. When David, we find him walking into the battle with the Philistines. And we read that the people of Israel are in the caves and under rocks and just crazy kinds of stuff. And David walks up and he says like, what is going on? Here's this runt young boy. And it's because David's read Deuteronomy, places like Deuteronomy 20, and he knows that in situations like this, what the Israelites were to do was to trust God, that God would fight for them. But what he sees is the Israelites not relying upon God. They're looking at themselves and saying, man, we got no chance. And so they've run and they've hid. It's not that David is the best soldier of his day. He just believes, right? And so in all of this, God had promised to manifest himself, to show himself to the people of Israel, no different than the way he had done to Moses. Think about this. When Moses went up on the hill, what happened? Moses said, Lord, I want to see your glory. God sticks him in the cleft of the rock, passes by, and says, proclaims his name. says, I'm going to cause my goodness to pass in front of you. And then he proclaims his name. In each moment where the people of Israel trusted and relied on the person of God and how he revealed himself to them, it was as if they were being put in the cleft of the rock and the glory of God in his name, like the Lord is my shepherd, the Lord is my defender, my deliverer, and all these things. The glory of who God is in each one of those statements was being revealed to them as if they were in the cleft of the rock no different than, than Moses. All of this brings us to our passage. An entire sermon brings us to our passage. In Ezekiel. And I want, so we, let's take a look at this. I told you we're going to have to do some work. But it's leading somewhere. And if this seems, if this sort of long and drawn out, the Lord was speaking this to me about two weeks ago, and that Chad asked me to preach on this, so you just blame him. Blame me. Blame Chad. And I'll take the credit. <laughs> <laughs> so Ezekiel 36, we're going to look at, look at verse, um, where do I want to start? We're going to start in verse 16. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land, because they had defiled it with their idols. Also I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name. Because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. 
But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among all the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances, and you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations." Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourself in, its own, in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. They will say the desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste, desolate and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left round about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and have planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also will I let the house of Israel ask, to do, ask me to do for them. Love that statement. I will increase their men like a flock like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during the appointed feasts, so will the waste cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they will know that I am the Lord. There's something about verse 20 that just stunned me when I read that two weeks ago. The disbelief and the disobedience of the people of Israel had this result of sort of close of closing them off to the blessings and the promises of God. They weren't allowed, they couldn't stay in the promised land. At this point, they had been deported, they were in uh, Babylon. And as the nations saw, the, saw this happening, and as the people of Israel saw this happening, we're told that it gave occasion for not just the, the nations to blaspheme God. The same thing is talked about in Jeremiah 33. And it says the people of Israel, for the same situation, blasphemed God. 
because everybody thought that God was no longer faithful, that God made promises and he didn't keep them. Because they looked at the people of Israel and they didn't see the promises of God being manifest in their life. They couldn't see the faithfulness of God coming through their life. And so as a result, they blasphemed God because they believed that God wouldn't do this kind of thing, that God doesn't do this kind of thing, and that he was no different from any other kind of God out there. You could flip this around and say, when is God most glorified? When is God glorified? God is glorified when his people are a manifestation of what he's promised to do. When God promises to be salt and light, we should be the people of salt and light, right? So our lives should should vindicate God and who he is as who he's promised to be is manifest through the life that we live. And how does that happen? In each moment of faith, as I look to him and who he's revealed himself to be, and I trust him as my shepherd, as my stronghold, as my fortress, as my deliverer, as the God of compassion, the Father of mercies, the God of encouragement, the God of endurance. In each one of those moments, as I look to him and trust him, he's manifesting himself in my life, to this world, his glory is upheld. When I turn from him and I don't trust him and I trust myself, I trust my circumstances, I trust my employer, the glory of God is belittled. I say, you're not sufficient. Your promises may be enough for them, but they're not enough for me. And the glory of God is belittled, it's made little of. God says, that's what's happening. But to remedy this, He says, I'm going to do something for the sake of my glory, and I love this. He says, I'm going to do, he's going to do two things. He says, to change the world, I'm going to change my people. In order to change this world, in order for my glory to be manifested and to be seen as what it truly is, I'm going to have to change my people. And then secondly, I'm going to need to act in a way that that gives testimony to the reality of who I am. One of my favorite verses is found in Isaiah. Write this down. It's Isaiah 41, verse 20. If all the prophets just confound you and confuse you, learn this verse. Because in it, it's the context of of this whole section of Isaiah is what you find in Mark chapter 1, where it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ As it's recorded or as it was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the path of the Lord. It's referring to this section of Isaiah. And what God is promising in the book of Isaiah is that he said, look, when when the Messiah and the kingdom arise, what's going to happen is I'm going to come to the most barren, desolate, sorrowful, dead lives. And I'm going to do what no one else can do. I'm going to breathe life. Where no life could flow, I'm going to burst out like rivers in a wilderness, causing life to abound. And he says, but I'm going to do it with such magnitude, here's 41, verse 20, that the nations see and consider together that the hand of the Lord has done this. It's like Rahab, the harlot in Jericho. She says, look, there's no explanations for the stories that we've heard, but that your God is real and our hearts have melted. 
Why? Because God was moving in such magnanimous ways that everybody knew that the finger of God was on it. If you ask me, what does God want to do in Santa Maria? Look, there's specific things to Santa Maria and the culture of this city, but I can tell you at the center of that what God wants to do. He wants to cause rivers to flow in the wilderness. He wants to go into the most forsaken lives, the most abandoned families, the most hopeless situations, and work with such magnitude that everybody knows that that could not have happened, but that God is real and Jesus rose from the dead. Right? This is the way Paul governs his life. If you go into Romans 15, you're going to see Paul sort of working this whole principle out. Romans 15 talks about Jesus coming to confirm the promises that God made to the fathers. So God sent Jesus, it says, to confirm the promises that God had made all the way back to, Mo- to Abraham when he promised Abraham to bless the entire world through him. And so then he goes on to talk about the specific promises of the, gospels of go- of the gospel going to the Gentiles. He said, so let me get this straight. God sent Jesus to confirm those promises, to make him true that the, God, that the whole world is being blessed. That was the promise he made to Abraham. And as a part of that blessing, the Gentiles are going to be brought in. That's most of us. And he says, as a result of that, it's my ambition to go to Spain, to go to Rome, and to preach the gospel in all these lands. Because I'm going to get under this thing that I know that God has promised to do. And I know that as I go to Rome or as I go to Spain, that I can go in the fullness and confidence of the blessing that Jesus is going to come with me and that he's going to bless what I do. Is it because I'm talented? No. Is it because I'm uniquely gifted? No. It's because God is committed to the glory of his son and will not let one drop of the blood of Jesus not get the glory that it deserves. He said, so I'm going to go to Spain with that confidence. I'm going to go to Rome with that confidence. And we can go into Santa Maria with the confidence that God is so committed to the fame of his son that I can go into any neighborhood, any situation, anything that seems beyond hope and be light and salt there. You might say, well, you don't know me. I'm equipped with nothing. I just heard this from a friend of mine yesterday. I bring nothing. He said, But he said, but I believe. What do you bring to the city? The first thing Chad and I talked about, first thing, sitting at at Andrini's five, six years ago, was we realized God had called us, John 6, to do the work of believing. That was our first point as we were sort of working through all this stuff. God has called you to do the work of believing, to believe that God in Jesus, that God wants to magnify the worth of his son and that God will keep his promises to you and through you as you go forward. Look, apart from that, I come home from Waco. That is the only thing that sustains me. We go back with very little in front of us, but the promise, like, what are you armed with, Rick? I have the promises of God. What else do you have? I've got a wonderful wife. What else do you have? Well, that's pretty much the end. I got a brother back here, another brother in Phoenix, you know, friends, other friends actually that are in this room. God will act for the sake of his name. So God is changing people to change the world. I want to make one comment on this, and only one, and I know we're going long, and I'm sorry, but 
I'm, I've, I'm drinking from the same fountain as Chad. <laughs> Look, this is one of Chad's favorite passages. Chad, I, if, if you're here for a long time, Chad will hit this many, many times, and so I don't really want to do this. But when you read Ezekiel 36, it, this does not talk about what God will do, what he might do in your life, or if you seek him as a believer, someday he might manifest this to you. This is the story about what he's done. This is the story about who you are, right? Who was praying this morning about the realities of who we are? Someone was praying this, and it was just tremendous. Ezekiel 36 is about who you are. And Ezekiel 36 reminds us that what we need to do, when the ebb of, when our life is ebbing, when you've lost your joy, you've lost your confidence, you've lost your hope, the river of life in your life, there's nothing sprouting up. You don't identify with statements like Peter, though we don't see him, we rejoice with joy unspeakable, full of glory. Like, does that verse connect with you? If not, what do you do? You look at a verse like this and you say, this is who I am. I am a son of God. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The blood of Jesus has dealt with my sin. I've been freed. I am a new creation. This doesn't become true of me. I don't make it true of me. I don't purchase what's already been bought. I don't accomplish what he already did. This is who I am. I live in the reality of this. I don't make it true. It is true. And so much of what we need to do is step into that. God says, look, this is what I'm doing. This is what I've done. If you're my child, it's as true of you as it's as true of me as it's true of the next person. This is who we are. He says, step into this. Last point. How are we going to know that, how are we going to know that God is doing this in us? How are we going to see God working for the sake of his glory in this church and around us in this city? He tells us. So how do we recognize it? Was it just because we had a great service? No. No. How are we going to know? He gives us three points. We can hit these really briefly. He says three things. Number one, chapter 36, verse 33. On the day that I cleanse you, on the day that all this is true of you, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt. How do you know that this is happening? We become the rebuilders of the city. Proverbs 29.2, when righteousness reigns, the city rejoices. I remember where I was. I can actually remember I was on the corner of Grand and, what is that street? Uh, Oak Park. Is that the name? Right? Right? Grand and Oak Park. And I called Patty. And Patty asked me, because we were about to leave. She said, Rick, so what are you going to be doing? I don't know if you remember this car. You might not if you remember it as we go. And for the first time in my life, I think I answered that question different. And I said, I think what's, what I'm learning, Patty, is more important than what I'm going to do is what I believe. It's what I believe. And if you want to ask what are we going to do to change Santa Maria? And we can get a bunch of whiteboards, and there's a place for that. And we can get creative and talk about the needs and various things. 
But before you all, before you do any of that, you have to ask yourself some real fundamental questions, which is this. What do you actually believe? What do you believe that God has promised to do to exalt his son? What do you, what do you believe God has promised to do in the arrival of the kingdom? Because if you don't believe certain things, what you're going to strategize is various ways to take five loaves and two fish and feed seven people. But if you believe that God is committed to the fame of his son, you're going to, you're going to take some of that grace that's on the table that wants to come into play, and you're going to say, okay, Lord, we're going to maybe start believing that you want us to take the five and the two and start feeding 100, because we're not quite at the place of yet maybe of believing for 5,000. But we're, we're going to trust that. And so the first question you have before you engage the city, before you engage your neighborhood, before you engage your family, is what do you believe? When you pray for your family, do you pray because you believe this promise is for you and for your children? Yes. What do you believe? So the first thing we start recognizing is that God is, is a rebuilder of the broken ruins of the city. Yes. So I'm going to love one person, but I'm going to believe for the city. Second thing, how do you know? Prayer. Verse 37. I, if you wrestle with... I, my son asked me the hardest questions I ever get asked. This guy right here. Daniel, that's like his role to like just confound me with Bible questions. Dad, so what do you think about this, Dad? And the, I get a lot of these these so sovereignty, you know, our responsibility, and how does all that work, and in prayer, and all that. And I, I just don't know a verse like this in Scripture. Verse 37, listen to this, every word. Every word weighs a theological ton here. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I'm not just going to do it for them. I'm going to let them ask me to do it for them. I see a sovereign God and I see human responsibility being woven in there. God says, I could just do it for you. Israel, I could just wipe out Jericho, but you're going to have to walk it around it seven times. You don't get to sit on the hills and just watch. You've got to march. If I'm going to move in your city, I'm going to let you ask me to do what I've promised to already do. Like, have I, yes, I promised to do that, but I'm going to let you. I'm going to give you the opportunity to ask me, because I'm a God who likes to be sought, like a, like a spouse likes to be sought, because there's love. So I'm going to let you seek me to do what I promised to do for you in the city. So how do you know that God is moving? Because God is stirring a people who are committed to his glory, who've seen something of his glory, and yearn for it in the city and pray it forward. Yes. Possibly the best illustration of this, and we're almost at the end, is Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, you have the angels who are before the thrones, and they're just on that constant repeat, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then your Bible says, the whole earth is full of his glory. Another way you can read that phrase right there is let the whole earth be full of his glory. I actually prefer that second reading because it makes sense of the book of Isaiah, what God is actually doing. So the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and we can't imagine a place in the universe that does not reflect the splendor and the excellence and the worth of the glory of God. And so we are praying that things on earth would be as they are in heaven, because we see how they are in heaven, and we want them to be on earth that way. 
And when the people of God start praying, it's because you ache and you long. You've, seen, you've caught a glimpse of the glory of God. It's been shown into your heart, and you just can't imagine a neighborhood or a family member that is not experiencing what you've seen and you've known, and so you ache it forward in prayer. So how do we know that we're coming to see the glory of God? It's being expressed in our prayer. We're like the angels of Isaiah 6. We've seen something. And so we're praying it forward in the land. Last point. Filled churches. Verse 38. Like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during appointed feasts, so the waste cities will be filled with flocks of men. Like I, I hear... I hear just too many stories of, you know, we had a church of 300, and this year we grew by 30. We grew by 10. Nice folks, they came, that's great. When I read the promise of Isaiah of the bursting, like, you're going to have to enlarge your tents. When I, when I see the promise of the coming of the kingdom, like the city being filled, like the flocks would fill the city, so I'm going to fill... This, re, this revamped city with these kinds of people, ultimately, that, that's a view, I think, of the, of the New Jerusalem. But it is what is happening in the coming of the kingdom. There should be in our praying a hope and expectation because I know God is committed to the glory of his son that God is going to fill up the church. God wants to bring in the crowds. And it's not because you have the best team. You've got a great team here. Love your team. It's not because you have the best pastor. Love your pastor. It's because God is committed to his glory and the glory of his son. Yes. The glory of his name. And so you can believe that. Yes. You can go out with that with confidence. If, not, if you don't have confidence in that, you'll turn and, you'll turn and run. my question for you this morning is this. What do you believe? What do you believe? That's a big question. What do you believe to be true about God? A.W. Tozer, the most important thing about us is what we think about God. Spurgeon said, the thing that the church suffers from more than anything else is low views of God. Both those guys carry a little bit of weight. What do you think about God, the gospel, the kingdom? Is it just an abstract idea? Does it govern your life? The gospel, the good news for you is that he says, my promise to you is that today, tomorrow, this week, I want to reveal myself to you. I want you to know that you know that you know me. I want, to, I want you to know me in ways that you've never known me before. That's not going to happen by just a download. I can't just lay hands on you and have you experience that apart from a life of faith. It is through your faithful believing, God says, that the good news for you is I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there today. I'm going to be there tomorrow. And I'm going to perpetually be there. And when that starts happening, what's going to happen in this room, let me tell you, is you're going to become like Paul and you're going to start dreaming. You're going to say, Chad, let's take that hill. Let's take that part of the city. 
And you're going to say, well, what do we have? And you're going to say, I've got five loaves and two fish. Is that enough? Hey, we're good. Why? Is it because that's enough? Never. It'll never be enough. The kingdom of God is always taking camels, throwing it through eyes of needles. It's always walking on water. It's always doing the impossible, but you're going to believe that God is committed to do this in the blood of his son. Let's pray. Father, the one thing that stirs in my heart, I think in so many of our hearts, is that, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Lord, we want to believe more. Like Paul told Timothy, Lord, we pray that the grace of God would abound with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So we pray that your grace would abound, that it would come with the faith that we need to see Jesus, to believe in his promises, and to move forward. So, Lord, we pray for that outpouring of grace. As the church gathered in Acts 4, they prayed because they knew they so desperately needed. And it says, abundant grace was upon them all. Father, we need your grace. We leak grace. We leak it terribly. And so we need it desperately that we might believe and that we might move forward. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.